Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Professor Wilfred Riley. Um, uh, he's a professor, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University and the author of Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts That You Can't Talk About. Hey, Wolf, thanks for coming on. Yeah, as always, you know, thanks for having me back on, uh, on the show. Um, yeah, okay, I wanted to speak to you because I know you do a lot of work with disparities between populations and stuff, and there was a something someone put out the other day they said, okay, well, here's breaking the myth of the you know, model minority from Asians because you know, Burmese are like 28% under poverty, Bangladeshis are like 19, and they just listed it off. I just looked at it really quickly, and I went to like the first two, the Burmese and the Bangladeshi. The Burmese population in the United States, from okay, I'm going off Wikipedia, so I'm not saying it's anything definitive, but it was 499% increase between 2000 and 2010. And then Bangladeshi as well, there was a large population increase in the early 2000s as refugees. So my only thing was, I mean, it could be racism, whatever, but if it's a new population and it's young, especially like from a place like Burma or Myanmar, uh, you know, they're coming in as refugees. They've only, if 500% of them only been, or an increase of 500% in 10 years, they can't, they don't have time to accrue wealth. So, I mean, I was just, Wondering if we, if you want to talk about disparities, like, you know, like just the number itself doesn't actually give you much unless you know what they're looking at, right? Yeah. So I think this gets into one of the big ideas in kind of contemporary social science, which is that disparities indicate by themselves discrimination. So uh, Ibram Kendi, who's a pretty famous guy, has argued this um, on a bunch of national platforms. His claim is that the, if you see a disparity in, for example, income between two groups like whites and blacks or whites and Bangladeshis, the only possible explanations for that are one, that the group that's performing more poorly is genetically inferior. He says something like permanently structurally inferior. That could be a couple words off. Or two, that there's some kind of hidden racism in the system. This is what's often meant by subtle racism or institutional racism that's causing these gaps. And a bunch of people, and I'm really openly in the second camp, have kind of come back at that and said, well, no, the alternative, the third option is virtually all of social science, that there are characteristics like study, culture, age, where people live, so on down the line that vary between groups and that are the reason different groups earn different amounts of money. So, I mean, the, the fact that we're talking about Asians at all kind of indicates that racism isn't the only factor here because there's something like 18 groups in the USA that do much better than whites, like significantly better. Uh, Indian Americans, Japanese Americans, Nigerian Americans, all these groups, Filipino Americans, Lebanese Arabs do way better than whites if you just take that group whites as a whole. And I think it's really crazy to argue post 9-11 that Arabs or Pakistanis are treated better than white people, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, Nigerians are just black. Like there's no way, unless you're a very sophisticated you know, policy analyst, you're gonna be able to tell a Nigerian guy or a West Indian guy from a black guy. It's just gonna be a you know, dark-skinned, well-off brother with a name like Jonathan Goodman. So there's clearly something going on here. You know, um, so like when you talk about the Asian thing, this again, to me, is evidence of kind of what I'm saying, you know, of course he says, but still, I, I think so. Because when you talk about, in particular, South Asians, like subcontinental South Asians, like Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, Indians, 
you know, I, I mean no offense here as a, a traveler of the world, but the average white guy in Georgia is not going to necessarily be able to tell those groups apart um, at all. I mean, the... Hey, look, the, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm from India. I was born there. I go back there. You know, if I saw three people and I couldn't tell you who was from Bangladesh, who was from India, and who was from Pakistan, because it's just... I mean, it was all one country at one point. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, that's yeah, exactly sorry. right. Like, if you're, if you're watching, like, a cricket match on TV and it's, like, India versus Bangladesh, like, the, not this is a thing I do very often, but the, the fans of the two countries are going to be indistinguishable to you as a white guy or a black guy watching from yeah, Canada or the USA. Yeah. So, I mean... I think that the, the clear point there is when you look at Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, and Indians, you have three groups of people that I guess in cultural and genetic terms, you'd phrase as subcontinental South Asians. They look very, very similar. They come from what used to be the same country. And prior to that, you know, the British Raj and prior to that quarreling sultanates across religious lines and so on. Um, but they get, they earn very different incomes in the USA. Bangladeshis, as I understand, are quite poor. Um, tend to live in urban working class neighborhoods, um, own a lot of small businesses. Pakistanis have moved into the middle class and Indians are the richest group in the country. Um, probably right behind Ashkenazi Jews who prefer not to be separated off from whites, but like right up there. Um, and I mean, that implies to me because th there's no difference in the level of racism that you would face as an Indian guy versus a Pakistani guy. I mean, that implies to me that what you're seeing is the effect of something else, obviously. I mean, higher starting social class at home, uh, more of a chance to accumulate wealth in this country, like you said, which allows you to send your kids to a better school and get that improved educational result. I mean, so there's all this stuff that goes into that. I mean, it, it takes almost a religious belief to look at a guy from Pakistan and a guy from India and say a $50,000 gap in income, that's got to be racism. That, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, the India-Pakistan thing and even the Bangladesh thing, I'm, I mean, again, I don't study this, but if I had to take a guess, if you looked at Pakistan, when people started coming in, mm. I'm going to guess that immigrants that came in before the, like, before the mid-80s to, like, about 90 yeah. would do better than the ones that came in after that. And just because of, they changed the education system in Pakistan in the early 70s, and it went from a British-based education system to an Islamic-based one. And then starting in 79, Saudi, Saudi and Iran started pumping money in there to put in more madrasas. So it got more and more Islamic education. And Bangladesh, I mean, they since they were a country, they've had like floods and whatever afterwards, but they've also gotten more and more religious. So I think the immigrants who are coming here don't have the same starting basis of, of India because India kept a British back education system. And I think that does have a difference. I mean, someone who goes to you know, lives in an Orthodox Jewish community in Manhattan. I, I've spoken to a couple of ex-Orthodox Jews, and when they left the community, I mean, they didn't even know how to open up a bank account. I, you, I think you have to look at those factors, but I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. And so a community like, you know, African-Americans, descendant of slaves, couldn't own property, got, you know, if you, like, soldiers that came back after World War II didn't get the GI Bill. Now, that does affect the earnings of that population and it affects the starting point. And I'm not saying that someone coming in as a refugee starting off with millions of dollars or even a, you know, an immigrant coming in is coming in with tons of money, but is there some way like to take that into account as well as to, I'm not saying it's racism, but it was the history of racism, the history of you know, racist laws, racist policies that caused this. Now there's gotta be a way to address that without just saying, well, it's all racism, right? Because I mean, that does affect how they will do as well. 
Yeah. So I think, and again, this isn't, actually, I guess this does come from a published book. I mean, Taboo's made the bestseller list. It was reviewed by a fair number of academics. But so a lot of what I'm saying is a ping in more than something from a, a paper that came out this year. But I mean, again, it, it, from my books to Tom's all so on, it's pretty grounded in the literature. I'm just trying to like base my thoughts here. I actually think that it's not all that difficult to unpack what you're talking about. So very often when you talk to people that are on kind of the other side of this, you hear these very broad terms like systemic racism or institutional unfairness that don't necessarily mean much of anything. I'm, I'm sure they do to certain people, but they can mean different things to different people. And I think from that kind of quantitative perspective, it's important to, and it's not that difficult to separate this into kind of more coherent categories. So for example, I don't think anyone would dispute that past racism has affected African-American. So if you look at whites versus blacks, just two, two groups that in my opinion have very similar cultures here in the USA. I mean, I don't necessarily think you find that immigrant study ethic in either one in a lot of our states, but you know, long-term Americans, patriots. If you look at whites v. Blacks, the primary reason that there is a wealth deficit for Black people is that Black people weren't as able to access wealth until pretty recently, say 50 years ago. Um, and I will say, by the way, that wealth deficit is often presented in a misleading fashion. I think we're going to get there a lot sooner than a lot of people expect. What that basically means is the average white family owns a cheap house and the average black family doesn't yet. Um, there's still a fair amount to pay off on the primary property in the family, or you might live in a nice rental property rather than a cheaper home, something like that. When you say that the average white family has $110,000 in wealth, you don't mean that they're $110,000 worth of gold bullion or stock certificate or something in the average house in South Dakota. That wealth is the house itself and the truck out front. The, the only difference between the average white family and average black family is that there's still a substantial amount of the mortgage to pay off for the black family. So I think that means something a little different from what most people think it does. But nonetheless, something like that, uh, the wealth gap or the higher percentage of African-Americans in what's technically poverty housing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's almost entirely due to the past. So that, that's one element of what someone could refer to when they refer to systemic racism. Another element, and I think here you're getting onto iffy, almost nonsensical ground, is cultural mechanisms that developed often for both blacks and poor whites when the ethnic groups in the USA were in conflict that are often negative. So if you look at the black community, there's no denying that there are some problematic cultural issues. I'm not going to leave whites alone on this either. Um, you know, if, if you look at a lot of things from ODs to suicides, I mean, whites are definitely holding their own, if you want to use, use that term. But in the black community, I mean, three obvious problems. Uh, the black crime rate for violent crime is about 2.4 times the white crime rate. You can see that every year just by looking up what's called the BJS, Bureau of Justice Statistics Crime Report. I believe 2019 is just out. 2018, which came out in 2019, maintained this pattern. It's been the case for decades. Um, two, there's a very high rate of family instability in the black community. Um, the out-of-wedlock birth rate, what generally, what used to be called the illegitimacy rate, is 72% uh, for African-Americans. Uh, I will note, it's close to 40% for whites. It's 60% for Hispanics. So again, a lot of these are American issues. But that is a relatively recent Black problem. 
And we all, there's also a test score gap between specifically, and I, the, the, the genetic arguments for this are very weak because it doesn't really exist for West Indians or Nigerians, between African-Americans bluntly and whites. So the black SAT has risen to about 950, but the white SAT during the period where this has happened has been between 1050 and 1130. So, I mean, there are, those are three things that are notable in the black community that are obviously barriers to success. And so here you're not talking about racism in any conventional sense. Um, I don't think that any white guy today wants those problems to exist in the black community outside of the stormfront fringe. I don't think there are laws like segregation that cause those problems to exist. I think that a combination of things, racism in the past, conflict with the whites outside of racism. I mean, uh, being raised in sort of that Southern warrior culture for a lot of African-Americans, an entire book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals discusses this, and also other factors like welfare. A lot of things were responsible for these cultural issues. But anyway, so you've got those cultural issues. And again, I'll openly say you have very similar ones in working class white communities, Hispanic communities. But that's another thing that's meant by systemic racism that's often a little misleading. Um, so you've got past racism, you've got cultural stuff. And finally, some people use this term to refer to alleged contemporary racism, like the idea that cops are committing a form of genocide against black men. And very often this stuff turns out to be bullshit, frankly. Um, I mean, the total number of unarmed people, we talked about this once, long conversation. Total number of unarmed brothers killed by the police last year was 14. It was originally listed as nine. You know, so I think that when you look at all of this combined, this is kind of a rambler, so this is my last sentence here. But I mean, you can, you can find, of course, past racism played a role. And if we're being honest, so did the cultures that developed among working class isolated groups fighting one another, in particular, in many cases, in the African-American community. And then you can look at the claims of contemporary racism. I don't think the argument for contemporary racism, once you make a basic mathematical adjustment for affirmative action, is very strong. Uh, black people do face some racism, but you'd really have to convince me it's more than Arabs or South Asians facing a lot of situations, again, post 9-11 past 20 years. And we also are very definitely compensated by affirmative action programs. It's not particularly hard to get into university as a black man, so on. So if what you mean by racism is the effects of past racism or the culture that came out of past racism, sure. If what you mean is for the past 40, 50 years, there's been a culture of legal racism in the USA. I mean, that, that's not true. So when, you, when you're talking about this with someone, it's important to kind of define your terms in the old debater's line. Yeah, no, I mean, that's because of what I'm getting at. And also, I mean, you'd mentioned a couple of things there. Okay, I, I think I saw you tweet out where you said, like, this had changed in the 70s. But uh, I'd heard John McWhorter talk about this, and I'd said something similar. I was like, okay, we have to go back to the 97 mindset. Now, I think you said, and I, I could be, like I said, it was a tweet, so, you know, I could be completely off base here. But I think you said something like, in the 70s, they started trying to deal with racism again instead of fi fixing societal issues. Yep. But uh, I think that more happened in the late 90s because just with the way that intersectionality, the intersectional framework got put onto critical race theory in the late 80s, early 90s, and then when the people with those degrees started coming out in the mid to late 90s, I think that's when more of the policy stuff went towards fixing racism as opposed to fixing problems with schools or fixing economic issues or, you know, let's get better policing or whatever. Like if they'd actually concentrated on police brutality and police training, instead of police are killing black folk, something might've happened. Like that's what I'm thinking. Like around the late nineties is when this thing just went completely off the rails. 
I mean, I know you said the late seventies. I don't know. If, do you still like? I don't know. Like, if you want to get into that, like, do you think it was started that far back, or do you think it's it, it was getting? Because in my mind, it was getting better. But you know, I could be. Well, that's that's a good question. I think there are, again two things there. By the way, I agree with you. Race relations were a lot better when I was growing up as a kid um, than they are today in terms of the. The, yeah, but I mean, like, the you just would have gotten beaten up at an urban high school if you said anything alt-rightish at all. But the same thing for the black equivalent where guys are talking about, like, the horrific oppression of growing up in the suburbs. You had this kid recently that, like, his high school rival said niggas. You, you could argue about the R. But, like, I mean, on a TikTok video, and he, my man saved it for four years and dropped it when she got an athletic scholarship. I mean, the idea of anyone doing this when I was growing up, I think when you were growing up, it would be just absurd from the white side to the black side. So, yes, I agree race relations used to be a lot better. Um, when you talk about the influence of CRT, I think they're actually, when I, when I refer to the 1970s, what I often say is that by about 1975, when you had OJ on TV and, you know, X percent of interracial couples, I think that most of the traditional barriers to success as a black South Asian native, I mean, assuming linguistic fluency, so on, American, they weren't gone, but they were very definitely crumbling. I mean, you had large corporations going to the minority middle class, specifically seeking to hire. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine in a northern state there were still any restrictive covenants in place at that time at all. You could say 1980 if you want. But the thing is, that's 40, 41 years ago. So I guess that's what I'm saying in terms of when, when did we have a chance to get past all this? maybe train, retrain the police or consider a one-time reparations payment, but move forward. Um, I'd say that was that point. So, I mean, we desegregated in the USA in 1954. It's worth noting the South fought that for close to 15 years, but the North had already largely desegregated in urban public schools. I mean, people went to school in their neighborhood. But I have a picture of the football backfield for my old high school in like 1926, and it's a black guy, what I think it was a regular white guy, Italian-American guy, Native American Indian guy. So, I mean, we had gotten by, certainly by the 50s, we'd gotten to that point nationally, we'd forced it on the South. 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act. So technically speaking, racism is illegal in the United States. It's, people often almost forget this. It's civilly illegal, and in some cases, criminally illegal to be a bigot, at least in hiring. You literally can't, if you own, you have a Mexican family that owns a restaurant that serves only Oaxacan Mexican dishes, you can't exclude whites or blacks. That dates back to 1964. Since 1967, we've had pro-minority affirmative action in place in the USA. So I'd give full school integration to, you know, 1974, 75, that's another 20 years. But by that point, 45 years in the past, I think that most Americans did kind of want to move forward with this. I mean, when you think about what was going on historically, I mean, we were out of Vietnam at that point. The, the Bird-Johnson rivalry would begin in a couple of years. We're not talking about, you know, cavemen. This is, this is a relatively modern period that's now, because this has gone on so long, a good period of time in the past. So, and I think, I guess what I'd say if we're putting together a time frame is that for a while, that's pretty much what we did. Um, actual racism was pretty severely sanctioned. I remember my uncles talking to me about some of the stuff that, People were told in the business world, not only about race, but about the treatment of women. You started seeing women enter pro sports locker rooms. That was fully common by the 1990s. There were a few silly scandals, that kind of thing. I think by the 90s, this is when you saw the colleges start producing 
the generation of people taught by the radicals of the 1960s and 1970s. So this was kind of an ironic backblow effect. And your question actually illustrated it really well. I hadn't thought too much about this. But when you look at some of these professors like Ward, Churchill, Bell Hooks, so on, that had been, who's the guy in Chicago that was a terrorist? Um, Hoffman? Yeah, maybe it's Hoffman, but he was literally a weatherman. And yeah, it was uh, Abby Hoffman, wasn't he? He was the weather underground? Yeah, I mean, that's unbelievable. Was it Abby Hoffman? Let's Look this guy up. I'm going to look up Chicago terrorist professor. I bet there'll be a quick professor. Bill Ayers. But I mean, like, we're just reading through this. William Charles Ayers is an American elementary education specialist. During the 1960s, Ayers was a leader of the Weather Underground that opposed U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. That's one way to put it. He's known for his 1960s radical activism but also for his later work in education reform and on curriculum and instruction. And then they just, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but in 1969, Ayers co-founded the Weather Underground, a self-described communist revolutionary group. Yeah, that's all it needs to be said, get a rope. Anyway, I mean, so. Weren't they the ones that came out with white skin privilege? Yeah. Wasn't that the Weather Underground? It was, it was, they were one of the first groups to say this. I, obviously, yeah. for the record, I don't recommend lynching Bill Ayers, but you know, the government yeah. should hang people for reason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, so when you, obviously when you have people like that in positions of power, and of course Ayers, I mean, no one's in fact going to do violence against him. He's apparently done some good in the study of, you know, higher education. But this generation of 60s radicals that went directly back into academia, this is also what happened to many of the feminists. If you look at what happened to the second wave, early third wave. Uh, they started teaching kids. And so in, you're probably right, that's like 96, 97, that you get the first full-fledged generation of people that had been raised under this stuff. And yeah, this is when critical race theory starts. I'd have to go back and look at when Paggy McIntosh wrote, but I mean, you had um, Kimberly Crenshaw, you had... Well, okay, I mean, okay, if you want to look at critical race theory like that, it was Bell's, I think he wrote his first book, because I know he's doing legal scholarship, but before that, like, I think his first thing on critical race theory was... 73 then his paper serving two masters was 75 or 76 then he had mcintosh and hills collins and you know crenshaw writing in the 80s and like it was but it was in crenshaw's paper um, mapping the margins that she wrote right at the end that you needed to put uh identity-based politics for people of color and they you know she applied postmodernism to it and then she said okay you have the critical race theory so she put that intersectional lens onto critical race theory around that time yeah and that's when it that's when it became like the engineering of critical race theory. Like, you know, engineering is the math is what intersectionality was a critical race theory type of thing. Like it became an applied social science at that point. Yeah. It's worth noting by the way, that intersectionality is a really, really simple idea. I mean, we both know how to run oh, yeah. standard multivariate regression models. I mean, what, what that means is you have a variable for race, one for sex and one for orientation. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually rocket science to say that the combination of your race, mm -hmm. sex, and who you like to sleep with can affect your outcomes in life. What a quantitative political scientist would say is so can your social class, you know, religious background, whether you're from the North or the South, urban, rural, political party, IQ, attractiveness, fitness. So this is a very simplistic way of looking at human affairs. This isn't actually some extraordinarily brilliant idea. I mean, at the, at the most complex level, it's just an interaction term between race and sex. So, I mean, I, I also think because so much of this happened in that kind of non-quantitative grievance study space, it's really gotten sort of a break. 
Uh, I remember Andrew Hacker was one of the people involved in this. He did the famous experiment where he asked a group of white kids, white dudes in Queens, by the way, I don't know if that's the best sample, but he asked a group of white guys how much they'd have to be paid to be black. And the average answer was $50 million. And for my graduate dissertation, I actually redid this, but I didn't just ask white people. I asked people in all groups. First, I mean, do you, do you find there to be validity in this question? Is this a choice you would make? But I mean, if, if this is the thing that were possible, if this is the thing you would do, what is the amount of money you would demand to change your race, your sex, your sexual orientation? And what I actually found was that Asians and Blacks both demanded more money than whites to change their race. <laughs> and in general, place a higher value on their identity. So like, if, when you look at these, the most racist group was old Asian men, as I recall, if you view this as a uh, definition <laughs> of racism at all. And the comments that people made, I, I had a qualitative section of the paper. And I mean, black guys openly said, you know, we have stereotypes as well. I think of whites as, you know, poor dancers, poor lovers. I think of them as worse athletes. Asian Americans were uh, utterly contemptuous of white and black culture saying things like, you know, we were civilized when you guys were living in caves. All of them. Oh. I, I think I mentioned. Sorry, I think I mentioned this. I think I mentioned this to you last time, but like South Asians, I don't know if it's the British thing or if it was because when the um, Aryans, like the Iranians, came in, they were lighter skinned, so they always had a thing for, you know, they still sell, sell like the whitening products. But my grandfather, when I was growing up in India, I remember him threatening to punish me if I was being bad by marrying me off to the black woman down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay, like that was like, and you know, because I mean, you hear that all, you know, only only whites can be racist. I'm like, no, South Asians can be racist as all hell. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, if you look at the great trading peoples of the world, like if you go around the mid world basin mm -hmm. and you dip over to West Africa and Ethiopia a little bit, maybe stop at the Arabs as well. I mean, all of these people were historically pretty extraordinary bigots. I mean, um, the Chinese for centuries insisted that China, the Middle Kingdom, was the center of the world. So they would refer to, you know, one of the more powerful Indian Maharajas or to Queen Victoria in Britain as like our barbarian vassal, whoever. And this became a pretty significant problem when people wanted to greet, you know, high Chinese functionaries or have an audience with the emperor. You know, would they kneel? Would they kowtow? So on. And the India, the South Asians were just as bad. The the whites, at least during peaks like the Roman era, then the later British period was just as bad. West Africans, very similar. Um, Egyptians. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't think that racism, at least in the sense of feeling your tribe is better than all other tribes is a white characteristic at all. But I mean, I, I guess I got into this just by saying that a lot of the stuff that's often trotted out is that we're brilliant quantitative scientific theory, like intersectionality, White privilege, for example, which is one of about 40 privileges people have, including class, quote unquote, pretty privilege, mm -hmm. so on. Uh, I don't really feel a lot of that stands up too well, but I, I will yield to you on dates. I mean, I'll, some of this probably started a little earlier than I said. It's coming out in the 80s and so on. But it's it basically, I guess it's just increased over time. You've gotten more faculty members uh, trained by the original group over the Oh, yeah, totally. Okay, look, I, I came back in 2014 and I've been looking, I, I was trying to find out when I first came back, I'm like, why am I being called a white supremacist for speaking out against Islam? I, I just wanted to find that out. I was like, I was curious. Yeah. And then I, it led me to this stuff. Um, intersectionality came into curriculums in some high schools in like, you know, places like New York, LA, Seattle, around 2010. If you look at what height, and Lukyanov did, and like you know, calling the American mind, they're saying, okay, around 2013, 2014, when it exploded on campuses. Well, if it comes into high schools around 2010, 
those guys graduate, start going into universities around 2013, 2014. They're already indoctrinated into the crap or some percentage of them. Like it's not all of them, obviously, right? It's like, you know, if, if every single madrasa, if every kid who went to every madrasa joined ISIS, we'd be in trouble. Like, you know, like it's only a small percentage of them. It's the same thing here. And now like this year I see it going or, you know, since George Floyd, I see it going into schools everywhere. And I'm like, I'm scared to hell. It's like, I'm like, you're going to get kids. Because you're saying, oh, you know, black kids were more focused on their identity the way, or on that $50 million question, black people will seem more focused on their identity than whites. But if you're going to get whites to start focusing on their identity and they're the majority population, and you're going to start telling them that they're responsible for everything, like, you're in for some law, you're in for a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's, that's something that I've long thought and that actually got me interested in researching the alt-right. Because the reaction to the alt-right was like people in the mainstream media had seen devils. And I, I had no patience for racial bigots of any kind. I, I do think of it as kind of an old world vice. Uh, yeah. You know, my West African and Irish and so on ancestors practice that. Here we really can't. The country's you know, 7% Asian groups that we didn't even encounter during, you know, the first stage of our development. So we, we can't keep these old primitive bigotries around. But I mean, nonetheless, when people started reacting to the alt-right, it was as though they'd seen demons. Like these people, they're, they're talking constantly about their race and their identity and wanting to live in a one-race state. And having come off the campus as a student and teacher, I mean, my immediate reaction was, well, that's not all that uncommon. The thing that's mostly notable here is that it's white people doing it. I mean, you know, since the Million Man March, there's been a high level of public tolerance for the Nation of Islam. You know, I mean, the New Panthers, the Back to Africa Brothers, the Aslan movement. So I think, and obviously a lot of the stuff that we're discussing, like Crenshaw saying that there can never be colorblindness or a move away from identity. I mean, that's the academic counterpart to that. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, if everyone talks constantly about their race all the time and then looks at one group, which still has slightly more power and says, but you can't. A lot of people in that group are going to say, no, to hell with this. I, I'm going to do the exact same thing you're doing. You know, if you want segregated spaces, so do I. And I, I think this gets back to the old line about philosophy being a series of footnotes to Aristotle. There are only so many human ideas. So, I mean, in a diverse society, you can either be integrated. You can train everyone to look up at the eagle and smile, or you can be segregated and caste-based. I think integrated is better. I don't think most people disagree with that. 100%. But, okay, I don't know if you ever read about it, and I'd read about it a couple of years ago, and then recently I was speaking with Thomas Chatterton Williams, and he brought it up. Yeah. The Fieldstone School in New York. So what they did was they, I think it was a K through 8 school, but I think this was for K through 5. Once a week for 45 minutes, they broke up the students into racial groups. They sent letters home asking their parents, what race are your kids? Okay. And then they got them to talk about the achievements of their particular race. So black, Latino, sure. Asians, but not the whites. The whites, they got them to talk, focus on their privilege. Within a few weeks, the kids started turning into white supremacists. And this could be like kids as young as kindergarten because you're getting to focus on all the bad things they did. And it was 45 minutes a week. And these, like, a couple of years ago, was it no? It was last year. They had some more race riots because kids were like they heard some kids yelling racist stuff in the washrooms, and then a bunch of kids did a sit-in and stuff like that. It's, it's like, but I mean, you have an example. You had little kids turning white supremacists because you got them to focus on the shit that they did apparently, and blame these kids for it. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things, so one of the things the alt-right is correct about, actually, is that diversity is a potential source of weakness for large nation states. It's a well-known fact in political science. However, what they dishonestly ignore is that it's also a potential source of strength. I mean, there are very, very well-known positive correlates of diversity. I mean, increased cosmopolitanism, you know, better culture, art, shopping, cuisine, but more seriously, I mean, decreased groupthink. It's not as hard, or it's not as easy to get that quote unquote, you know, German 1930s mob together and go invade somebody. You have to convince the leaders of different communities. Um, diversity dramatically assuming qualified immigrants increases patent rate, improves business climate. So some positives, some negatives. But the one thing that all these studies sort of agree on is that if you're going to be diverse, you have to do what's called managing diversity, which is a giant literature in business and social science. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But I mean, you have to create a shared civic national identity that different people agree to. We all have to agree that we're Americans. You can be Irish or Pakistani or whatever else American at home. But there's certain things like obeying the laws, paying your taxes, responding to the army when your summons comes along that traditionally 95 plus percent of people of all groups basically did. Um, the, the point of all this is that we know that if you focus on differences between groups, you get giant countries like Yugoslavia and the USSR falling apart into tiny statelets with names like the Republic of You and Me and I'm Not Sure About Me. Like we actually saw what happened in Yugoslavia where you started teaching each group in its own language about the history of its people. And it sounds like a T. Chatwill, who's a good guy, illustrated that in this, I'm assuming very costly posh private academy, by the way, that parents pay a lot of money to send their kids to. But yeah, if you take, I, I think this would have happened to a lesser degree if you took all the kids aside and told them about the triumphs of their ancestors. Because even then, whites or for that, Chinese students could say, you know, why were we so civilized? What about you, you barbarian, savage? But I mean, like, but certainly if you take one group and tell them they're evil, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. But no, but it was, okay, if you got all the groups talking about their achievements, that's one thing. And yes, you could get nationalism and jingoism that way. But if you have like all groups except for one talking about their achievements and one focus on their, yeah, that, I, okay, I wouldn't have been affected by that, but I, I would have thought that was wrong. Like if I was a parent, I would like say, what are you doing to these kids? Because I mean, that's not healthy kids. It's not, you know, like I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. I want education to work because when I'm an old, you know, when I'm an old fart and I need doctors, yeah. I want them to be able to be doctors, not worrying about do I need a brown doctor or a white doctor or a black doctor? Like, I don't want that shit. Just fix my problems. Or more to the point, will the doctor not treat me because I'm a member of the wrong tribe? That's what yeah. I got to in Yugoslavia. That's why there's such a high level of battle casualty. I, I worked. I worked in Bosnia for over a year. I, like I was there after the war was done, but I was there about in 2002 and 2003. I mean, I spoke to some of the people. It was just. It was horrific. Like I mean, I spoke to one girl. She was a translator at the point, but she was when she was 15. They spent like I think she said a year in her basement, locked away. Yeah, the the atrocities committed back and forth by the Serbs and the Bosniaks, and primarily by the Serbs, were unbelievable. I mean, it. Wow. one of the things that I actually, I think I defer from a lot of upper middle class Westerners in is that I don't feel a sense of security in civilization. Um, I noticed early on going to an integrated urban public school that a lot of my friends' dads had fled like really civilized countries when the fire started. Like, I mean, people were from Cambodia, Vietnam, Eastern Europe that had been conquered by the Russians. We had an Afghan kid. And I mean, they were all just talking about their countries like, yeah, we used to live in, you know, downtown Tehran. 
And it looked a lot like this in Chicago. And then it didn't one day, unexpectedly. <laughs> Always have gold packed. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, there's an element yeah. of truth to that. I mean, America has been shielded by our oceans and large populations and so on for a long time. So we forget how real this is. And we engage in a lot of stupid playtime during the spring over here. I mean, our higher educational exams compared to those at equal rivals like China or India are a joke. I mean, but it, it goes even further into this, where the idea is like, what's the harm? You know, we're the dominant group. Let's tell the kids they're evil for a couple weeks. Like, what can come of it? I don't think people really understand, unless they've studied this, what can come of it. I mean, I, you know what? I don't think parents know. I honestly don't. Like, the parents there, they got some of them got, you know, upset. And then I think there was challenges to it. I mean, but the school went ahead and did it. But... I don't think parents have time anymore. Like it's one of the things of okay, you have to you have to be a helicopter parent. You cannot let your kids out of your sight. You know, if you let your ten year old walk to the park, child protective service is going to come take them away. Like shit like that. Parents are too busy to actually see what's going on. They're like, oh, you're studying you're studying anti racism in school. That sounds good. Don't know what it is. Don't know what it says. Right? Uh, you know, like that mom in uh, Nevada who's suing your school now. She had the time to take a look at what was going on. Like, I don't think a lot of parents do. I think a lot of parents, oh, they're going to teach about, you know, uh, don't be homophobic. That's a good thing. But, you know, are they also teaching gender affirmation? Like, what are they doing? Like, I don't think parents know. I think that's a huge problem right now. Yeah, I mean, bluntly, that's something that you can kind of empirically, statistically break down. Like, yeah, pr- one of the advantages that the people that are promoting this stuff, like extreme CRT have, is that they're going into a pre-existing framework where most people, if your parents are executives, have heard of managing diversity, where everyone wants to be anti-racist. And they're kind of co-opting these terms and changing the underlying meanings. So racism, for example, to the 90 plus percent majority of people, literally, means genetic bias against another racial group. If what you're using racism to mean is any system that produces somewhat unequal results, and you're saying you're promoting anti-racist training, you can in fact promote the wildest sort of communism and present it to parents in this kind of neutral, how could you oppose this fashion? And you saw this a lot, this sort of misleading double language, not so much from reporters themselves, although some, but from pundits that were brought on television to discuss uh, Trump's opposition to CRT, where people were saying things like he's banning sensitivity training. And that's not really the case. I mean, the order said very specific things like any training that teaches about one group as permanently flawed, always oppressive or evil. I mean, it's sort of Nazi sounding stuff. Um, But it's fairly easy to get away with that. Critical race theory as a one sentence summary to me means taking essentially Marxist, theology is the phrase that comes to mind, but replacing the ruling class as the source of all evil with a particular racial group, usually whites. And from there, most of the core ideas, like most or all disparities are due to discrimination or alienation. Um, What else would you say? That fair, facially neutral looking systems are in fact set up to oppress. All of it's pretty much the same idea. Like CRT is just every system in society is set up to benefit whites. Yeah, I mean, I... I looked at it and I was like, okay, instead of trying to control the means of, you know, means of production, they're controlling the means of production of culture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they just went like, okay, we're going to take care of, take care of over everything by, well, I mean, whatever, Gramercy or whatever is the guy's name is, said it, the long march of the institutions, right? I mean, that's critical theory. It's not critical race theory, but okay, it's, it, like I said, I find it scary now when it's going to schools because I'm like, okay, it's, it's, it's coming around the corner into the final sprint. Like it's not no longer a long march. It's like, you know, like, 
Well, I think that the question with a lot of this, I wonder what, like, I wonder what, in, as someone who's dated a bunch of urban Catholic girls in high school, I wonder what impact, if any, teaching theology in school has. Like, I didn't notice most of them graduated from school with the names like rosary as drug-free virgins. So I think that there's, there's an element of children are often taught nonsense when they go through their country's educational process. I mean, you've talked about some very strict traditional madrasas in Pakistan and so on. Um, and some of the nonsense that we're teaching now seems to be this CRT stuff. Um, you know, disparities are all due to discrimination. White privilege is real. Cultural appropriation is real. But as you actually look at white and black kids literally putting on each other's clothes to go to parties and so on, you wonder to what extent do any of them believe this? I mean, in the era of, you know, Ben Shapiro videos online and, you know, obvious critiques of this on 100 podcasts like yours. I mean, do, will kids actually fall for this? Is it, see, I mean, I, with the Madrasa thing, no, they don't all go join ISIS. But enough of them will join the Muslim Brotherhood, which is like you know, a political version of it. Mm. And then enough again, like if you, if you go back to Sam Harris talking on Bill Maher and he did the concentric circles, okay. like the conservative ones, I mean, I think it's in the UK, 98% of UK Muslims want homosexuality criminalized. Really? So these people aren't going to join ISIS, but this is coming out of some of the faith-based schools. These are people immigrating to the UK from, uh, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, wherever. So I still think that if you get these kids young enough and you get them to start thinking like this, uh, I'll take something that's, you know, um, repressive tolerance. That came into the academy in like the mid-80s. And that started getting it into education in like the late 80s, early 90s. And so if you look at all, I just started noticing it when I, once I read the paper and I started, started noticing people, the way they talk about it. Look at all the uh, social media companies. Their censorship is based on harm. The harm that the words can cause, that's repressive tolerance. So the kids might not, you know, go along with the 100%, but they take in enough of it that the censorship now, the free speech now, well, okay, I'm, I'm free, free speech, but if it offends someone or it might harm someone, you know, you saying only biological women or women is going to harm the trans society, trans community. Like, so these ideas seep through. So even if they're not full on ISIS, you know, like coming out of these woke madrasas, they are taking some of it in because I mean, it, kids are sponges. They're going to take some of it in. If parents don't, can push back if parents don't have the time. You know, you mentioned single, single, you know, parent households. I don't know how much pushback they're going to. And if they go online, like, I think you can find a lot more diversity stuff that you can find. The you know the alt right or the Ben Shapiro stuff. I mean, Cartoon Network now is going on with the, the trans messaging and stuff like that. So I, I think they're just getting it from too many ends. Maybe I'm too pessimistic. I don't know. No, I think it depends. So I, I think you do have a point in that what you learn in institutional educational settings very often kind of shapes your background perspective of what the world is. So, I mean, the madrasa comparison is actually probably a pretty apt comparison in that if you go to a madrasa, as I understand, it's essentially classical Islamic education. I mean, you're at one point yeah. memorizing Quran. You're probably not learning a lot about feminism or evolution. So you may very well be a rebellious kid, but you'll be rebellious within the framework of what the Quran says is true. So, I mean, I don't, I, I guess, I don't think that the majority of people that go through 
woke education about cultural appropriation and white privilege are going to come out as social justice warriors. But you're probably right that most of them will have the baseline assumption that these things exist. And in fact, a lot of the claims being made by the hard political left as someone who's moved past 35, who grew up in a different era, are utterly nonsensical. Like the trans thing to me is the ultimate example of this. Like I'll see people that I like and joke with online, like Jesse Single, like trying as hard as they can to be polite with it. Like maybe we should hesitate a little more to let kids go through full on gender transitions. And my starting point for this is just like men aren't women. Like it's, they're biologically male and female are very different things. Uh, that's true at a chromosomal level. It's true at a gametic level. If you're looking at mammalian sexes, you can either produce like many small gametes or a few big ones. None of this is disputed. It's just biology. And this is the same thing when you talk about a lot of this other stuff, like is IQ real? Like, bro, yes. I mean, I, I don't think that black, white, Asian gaps are primarily genetic, but yes, you can give someone a math test and figure out roughly how smart they are. So, I mean, I think that there is some risk, and you said this correctly, in the sense that having this stuff as the baseline for education, as Islam is the baseline for education in Afghanistan or tribal Pakistan, means that it creates the starting assumptions people have. You're starting from the baseline that there is systemic racism in the USA, and then people have to convince you there is not. Whereas a traditional educational system would start you from the baseline that America is a reasonably fair society, which it is, reasonably. And you could then be convinced of sideline prejudices against Blacks and so on. Um, and Actually, when you mentioned Gramsci, this ties directly into the Gramscian ideal, which is if you want to convince people of radical or nonsensical ideas, what you do is seize the means of control of discourse. It's not that important that you control farming or industry or war or even religion. You have to control, at the time he used the term, the radios, the broadsheets. I mean, today, television. You know, if the cartoons are telling kids they're 18 genders, that has a deep, soft power kind of influence. The final comment here, though, I mean, that's true in the mainstream school system, in the kind of influential areas, Chicago, Seattle. I think what you're going to see a lot of people do is either flee the mainstream school system or the influential areas. I mean, I think you're going to see private school <laughs> attendance skyrocket. I mean, Catholic schools now cost two, $3,000. I mean, I think you're going to see homeschooling skyrocket. People have seen what the teachers are teaching under COVID. So I, I don't see this just going on without a substantial counter in major areas. I, I, that's... Oh. Oh, no, I, I hope there is. But, I mean, like, okay, I, and again, maybe I'm wish too much doom and gloom and, you know, I mean, I'm just watching too much for it. But, like, 46 districts in Texas now took on a BLM uh, curriculum. I mean, that's – Texas is pretty much a red state. I, I saw something in Tennessee about this. I mean, Tennessee is not exactly, you know, a blue state. It's, it's a, like – I mean, I know Nashville went uh, – but, but, I mean, like, there's – so – I think the public school system is looking for something. And unfortunately there's only one thing being offered right now when you're looking for this diversity stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I could see parents homeschooling. I, if I was in the States, if I had kids, I would not send my kids. I screw the States in Canada. I won't like we're getting a full on uh, gender affirmation curriculum. I mean, there's schools. I spoke to a civil rights lawyer recently. There's schools in Ontario where, you know, Joe is Joe at home and is Josephine at school. And the parents don't know. Yeah, that, this is actually something. So there's a lot here. I mean, first of all, when you talk about those school districts, I would bet that if you're talking about 33 school districts in Tennessee, that's Metro Nashville. 
Like, I, I will say that uh, this is probably going to be something that exacerbates the red-blue state divide in the USA mm-hmm. without having too much of an ideological impact on diversity or discourse overall because of where it's going to be located. I mean, if you look at most states following a presidential election, it's not even so much that we have red and blue states. It's that we have blue cities and red suburban and exurban and farmland areas. The only question is which state has more of which. So in Tennessee, I mean, what do you, what do you have? 300 school districts of this size of Kentucky, 370. I guarantee you the other, you know, 347 are not planning on, you know, rehoming their old curriculum and incorporating, you know, gender affirmation theory into it. So I, I think you'll see this fairly concentrated. I don't think you'll see this in the private schools. But I mean, the reason this matters, though, is that there is a pipeline between good schools and urban areas and the next round of discourse. Like, if I had to define discurs- discursive culture in the USA, I'd say certainly the university, the campus, um, you know, the media, mainstream media, broadcast media. But I'd say the NGO sector, the giant charities like the SPLC, the ADL. So even if you only have a small number of these people, I actually I had a conversation with James Lindsay. And I, I like James Lindsay. But I wanted to see what the factual basis was for some of the things that he said. He was interviewed by me and Pete Turner. And we asked, like, what percent of college degrees actually are in these fields? And Lindsay was like, okay, score for you guys, it's like 2.8%. But almost everyone in those fields then goes into, you can track this, they then go into certain sectors like HR, where the influence of those fields are journalism, communications, they're like five major or five fields of employment that roughly correlate to common majors that people in the grievance studies fields are going to go into. So they end up having a very significant effect. If you have an entire trading floor with 50 white and black and Asian guys cracking jokes, and then you have one person in HR that will fire anyone that goes over the line when it comes to gender, you've got a woke workplace, whether you want it or not. So, I mean, I I do think it's problematic. I also think, though, if you are working at the sea level in industry in Kentucky, this is going to have very little impact on your life. So this probably will, in fact further exacerbate this sort of discontinuity in the country where people don't even know what the hell other citizens are talking about. <laughs> I've started asking, last thing, but I've started asking people when I, I'm just having a friendly conversation, like a cocktail party, what I used to ask is a debater, which is, man, can you define your terms? Because so often people are using something in a sentence sense that I would never have used it, like rape to mean pleasant sex while drunk. And coming up with these horrifying figures, like 30% of women have been raped by the end of college. And obviously, like virtually anyone else, I significantly and brutally oppose rape. But when you hear that, it's sort of, you now unfortunately have to ask, what do you mean? That's what I think woke education will exacerbate. I don't think that the majority of the kids coming out of the elite private schools will end up woke per se. But I think there's definitely, as we saw with diversity in business, there's a plan to implant this in the culture for a long time. Yeah, that's, uh, like I said, that, that that's what scares me. That's just... There's too much of it from too many angles. And it's, it's the people, like you said, the people in HR, it's the middle management that like having meetings. These are the people. Who, great definition. Yeah. But uh, look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Um, if you got any last things to say on like how to look at population differences or like what people should look at instead of just believing statistics, uh, you know, let you go. Well, I'm actually a big advocate of believing statistics. I will say, I thought about this the other day, I think a weakness of the right and the business center is that while the left doesn't take statistics seriously at all in the era of you know my lived experience, I do think we are too inclined to take them as absolute. 
For example, I was looking at some IQ data the other day, and like some of the black African countries, I think Gabon, and some of the white Eastern European ones, like Chechnya taken alone, had IQs of, as I recall, around 70. And I remember looking at this and feeling superior for half a second and then saying, there's no way that's true. Like, what's, what's the average number of years of schooling in these countries? Like, what's, what's the tested score for the people that have gone through 12 years of education? And you can find that, by the way, and it's 20, 25 points different. So I do think it's important when you see something like test score rates for children in Harlem or West Virginia holler, not just to say, well, they need to work harder and to take that data at face value. Um, obviously, there are clear convincing limiters on a lot of statistics. But with that said, I think that our approach to statistics is better than the alternative, which is saying not we need to unpack that a little, but that's just a bull. Um, and from that starting point, I guess the point that I would make about group differences is that group differences are not a perverse deviation from the norm. Group differences are the norm. Um, throughout virtually all of history, it's been very, very rare for two powerful competitive groups, uh, Britishers, Nigerians, and South Asians at the same point in history, to test identically across the same set of metrics. And the same thing is true today. Um, there'd be no reason to expect the majority of Italian chefs to be Norwegian or to be Black. So when you see differences, certainly consider that racism might be one reason for them, but also think about what else could explain them. Uh, the example I always give when I speak to small groups for the first time, college campuses or high school athletic teams, is there's an income gap of about 17% between whites and Blacks, and this is universally attributed to racism. What do you think could cause that? And the first answer I hear is invariably, well, racism. Like you said, what else could it be? And then you start looking at things. I mean, the average age for a black man, the majority of breadwinners today are still males, is a most common age. Actually, there's no reason to exaggerate this at all. But the modal average for a black man in terms of age is 27, white guys 58. Just adjusting for that knocks a huge chunk off the gap. Just, okay, when you say, when you say modal, because most common age I, for a um, white guy is fifty eight, black guy is twenty seven, and yeah. Pew Research uses that statistic a lot because it sounds so dramatic. But even just the, the mean, the gap is multiple years, like more than ten years between blacks and some white communities. The average age for American Jews is over forty. Um, so you adjust for age, you have to adjust for region. Uh, far more black people live in the South. Where if you're looking at Mississippi or Arkansas, there's not a giant black-white income difference, but where everyone earns much less than they would in Manhattan. You have to look at test scores. There may be an element of class that ties into that, but it's just plain and obvious that if you get the Asian average SAT of 1181, you're going to do better than if you get the African-American or Native American average of around 950. That's a 230-point difference. There are only 1,600 points on the test. So... All of this stuff has to be taken into account before you can say with any degree of confidence that gaps represent anything other than luck or differential performance. And again, the most successful groups in the USA are primarily East or South Asian. I mean, Indians, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans. So I guess when you look at a difference between groups or at really anything else in the sciences, be prepared to explore and think and don't automatically default to your religious explanation. That'd be my last point. All right. Well, thanks again. That was great. Thanks a lot for coming back on and uh, thank everyone for listening.